0: Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Marion Dowd, who's a lecturer in prehistoric archaeology at IT Sligo, and uh, an expert on the archaeology of caves, and the author of the award-winning book, The Archaeology of Caves in Ireland, which is honestly one of my favourite archaeological publications of the last number of years. It's a real pleasure to have you, Uh, Marion. Thanks very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Uh,
0: Marianne, I'd love to just kind of have a chat about cave archaeology in general and the way that people have used caves in Ireland and how that's changed over time. But perhaps we should start with a little bit of kind of an overview of what cave archaeology actually is and how is it different to kind of the regular above-surface kind of archaeology that people might be more used to seeing
1: so it's a good question cave archaeology is basically any evidence that we have that humans used caves in the past and really if you look around the world wherever you have human occupation and caves we find that people tend to use caves What's interesting about caves is they kind of act as containers. So they they almost collect objects or bones or materials from different usages through time. So in Ireland, we have evidence for, you know, twelve and a half thousand years of people using caves. Uh, I suppose it differs from archaeology above ground because you never really know what you're going to find in a cave. I sometimes say it's like your grandmother's handbag. You never know what's going to be in there. So you can't be period specific when it comes to caves. And I suppose a lot of archeologists traditionally would come from a particular period or they specialize in a particular period. So you might have a medieval specialist or a Neolithic specialist, but you can't really have that approach with caves. Every cave tends to have, or or caves that are used tend to have lots of different periods of activity. So at one particular site, you might have Mesolithic material, Bronze Age material, early medieval material, 20th century material. So they tend to be multi-period sites. But just visiting a cave, first off, you have no idea of what kind of activities you're going to find there. And because caves tend to be like containers of activities or or these frameworks for activities, you find that people use caves in many different ways. So people have lived in caves or they've stored materials in caves or they've placed burials in caves or they might see caves as sacred places and they put ritual offerings in caves or they hide valuables in caves or they use them as hideouts for themselves in, in times of political turmoil or religious persecution. So caves can function in a variety of different ways. Uh, One of the other things I like about caves that can be very different to other types of archaeology is that the framework is the same over thousands of years. So if you go into a cave now and it's narrow and the ceiling is low and you bang your head at a particular area, you know that the people who came in here 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago had exactly the same experience. Whereas a lot of our above ground archaeology has been destroyed. So, you know, we find evidence of maybe a timber house or something like that. And we can, you know, visualize what it might have looked like, but you can't get that same experience. I suppose what we call the phenomenological experience, the physical or the sensory experience. And I think in that way, it can bring us very close to the past. You're literally experiencing a space in the same way that they would have experienced it.
0: I think that's really interesting, Maria. And it's, it's something that I kind uh, of, you, you know, you, it, that shows a little bit. I always say that about, um, I like the top of mountains for archaeology and particularly tombs on top of them. And, and one of the connections I like it, uh, is very similar to, as you say, though, that the contours of the land haven't changed. So when your legs are tired by, you get to the, by the time you get to the top, that's the same as somebody from the Neolithic period who was building the tomb in the first place, no doubt. And that's interesting to think of caves in that way too. I think. Caves. Um, I'm both kind of really intrigued and fascinated by them, but also a little bit unnerved by them. I think is the right word. It's not that I'm particularly claustrophobic, but the the sensory experience in a cave, and particularly the ones where you've got to, you know, almost crawl and, and things like that. Um, do you think that? That has kind of conjured up, I suppose, over time. There's kind of a a rich legacy, isn't there, of um, folklore and belief and mythology and legend that is attached to caves. Is that particularly apparent here in Ireland too, with that kind of folklore?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have the medieval manuscripts mentioning three caves in particular uh, from about kind of the 10th, 11th century. But then if we look at the folklore of the 19th and 20th century, we see caves cropping up quite a bit, And that kind of idea that, you know, caves are very, maybe terrifying places or scary places. And at the same time, they kind of, they're enticing places or places that we can be very curious about. You know, we see that reflected in the folklore in Ireland, but it's also very much an international thing. It's something that you see right across the world in different cultures, how they perceive caves. And I suppose one of the things I always think is that you can't be indifferent to a cave. So caves are always these kind of environments that are so unusual and distinctive that people always have a strong reaction to them. And I think claustrophobia is a very natural reaction because, you know, even I've been working in caves for whatever, 25 years, and I've had experiences in some caves where I feel very claustrophobic and, you know, very, very uncomfortable. Uh, And I suppose it's that whole idea of caves being places that we know so little about. And even in the modern world where we have torches and we can bring in artificial lighting, it it never still kind of um, removes that idea of these as being very kind of dark and, and maybe scary places for some people, maybe very calming places for other people. And it's the effect that they have on the senses what a lot of archaeologists in the past would have talked about is that caves are places of sensory deprivation and they would talk about you know how the senses are deprived going into a cave and being in a cave and I've never really liked that expression um I kind of tend to prefer the idea of caves as being places of heightened sensory experience because apart from sight all of the other senses are really heightened in a cave so Yeah, you lose your sight and you're in darkness, but then all of the other senses kick in and they start to maybe be stronger to compensate for the lack of vision. Uh, And I think it's that very physical and sensory experience that, you know, makes people have very strong reactions to being in a cave and spending time in a cave.
0: Uh, what was it? Was that the kind of aspect that first attracted you into cave archaeology? What What was the What came first? Was it the archaeology and the particular sites, or was it that you already loved caves and had experience of caves before you you started working in archaeology in, in in the?
1: No, I'd never really been to a cave, and I didn't know anything about caves. And in my case, I was doing a masters in UCC in the late nineties, and. For the second year of the master's, we had to do a thesis, and my supervisor was Professor Peter Woodman. And Peter was suggesting different topics to me. So I think about a topic and go away and come back a few weeks later and say, oh, I don't really like that, or that's not interesting. So I think after coming back to him three times refusing or particular suggestions, he said, well, someone needs to look at caves. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. That sounds interesting. But at the time, that was 1996. At the time, cave archaeology didn't exist in Ireland, really. And both of us were a little bit worried that there might not be enough material to do a one-year master's thesis on this. And I spent a lot of that year thinking, oh, I hope that there is enough material. And of course now, a couple of decades later, I'm still working in the area because there is such a huge amount of material from Irish caves, but it's a very new discipline in Irish archeology span or a sub-discipline. Uh, so that's kind of what got me into it. It was almost a little bit accidental and, and very much thanks to Peter Woodman and you know, who was such a fantastic archeologist and also gave me my first job working on a cave excavation as well.
0: Uh, but So I kind of fell into it accidentally. So uh, prior to the, your work in it and, you know, starting out from that point, what kind of investigations had happened in Irish caves? Was it something that antiquarians were interested in? Or was there any kind of tradition of, of kind of, you know, archaeological excavation at all uh, on the whole island? Or what was the kind of background to it?
1: Well, a lot of the caves that produced archaeological material were investigated in the nineteenth century, and what was happening towards the end of the nineteenth century is that scholars in Ireland and Britain were very interested in caves as places to recover bones of extinct fauna. So this was a huge kind of movement in Britain, and then Ireland kind of followed. So you had top scientists at the time forming groups and excavating caves with the the objective of looking for extinct faunal remains. Uh, And in particular, there was a group called the Committee Appointed to Explore Irish Caves, which I think is, you know, a fabulous name and a fabulous idea. And what these groups did then is they selected caves where they thought would produce uh, bones of extinct animals. And it was almost an accidental byproduct of that, that they recovered archaeological material from, you know, more recent periods. And by recent, I mean, you know, the Neolithic or Bronze Age or early medieval period. And what happened in many cases then is that this archaeological material ended up in natural history museums or natural history stores or in private collections. So the material was there, but the archaeological community often didn't really know about it. So a lot of my work at the beginning was pulling together this material and actually, you know, extracting it from what were kind of geological reports or reports on extinct animal uh, remains and seeing what that actually said about you know, Irish archaeology. I suppose another big difference is that in Britain, from you know really the 18th century onwards, caves were places that produced a huge amount of Paleolithic material. And again, when we think about caves, we often think about the Paleolithic caves in France and Spain with the incredible Paleolithic paintings. But because none of that material was turning up in the Irish caves, they were kind of ignored. Uh, one of the reasons that cave archaeology is, is far more developed in Britain, uh, or at least far more sites are known about in Britain, is because of archaeologists looking specifically for Paleolithic material. Um, now, the the uh, other side of that coin is that in Britain, what often happened with the early explorations, because they were specifically looking for Paleolithic material, they often chucked out later materials, and especially medieval or post-medieval material from caves. Um, So we don't have that issue in Ireland because, you know, um, that wasn't happening to the same level.
0: Anna, there's still, um, in terms of kind of an an average year, do you still get um, discoveries in caves being, uh, do you still get notified of them? Uh, Like the... uh, uh, people still exploring Irish caves in terms of cavers recreationally going into them, and are they still finding archaeological materials?
1: Yeah, it's the the occurrence rate tends to be about once every two or three years. And if we look at the archaeological discoveries that have been made in Irish caves over the past 50 years, about 80% of those archaeological finds are made by cavers. So Ireland has, you know, a caving body the Speleological Union of Ireland and you know you might have maybe 60 or 70 active cavers that are caving regularly uh, around Ireland and it's the caving community who end up finding the archaeology in caves and you know they have a very strong conservation ethic, So generally when they find archaeology, they stop and they contact the National Museum or the National Monument Service. Um, so yeah, it tends to be about once every two or three years that new sites are, are being recovered. So one of the issues is that generally cavers like really big and long and deep caves, and they tend to be not the places where we find archaeology. Archaeology tends to be in smaller caves or maybe in the entrances of those bigger caves. So um, that's one of the, the issues. The types of caves that cavers like aren't types of caves that archaeologists might focus a project on for example but yeah it is cavers who are responsible for almost all of the finds in Irish caves over the last 50 years. That's
0: fascinating and I suppose looking at that you know an actual um, connection is, is thinking about the difference between what we look for in a cave today as a society in, in terms of a big beautiful recreational kind of adventure versus t- how people used them in the past. So perhaps we could talk about um, the changing use of caves over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been involved in some fascinating excavations and investigations and perhaps we could have a, a, a chat about maybe one or two of them maybe and um, I, I, move through time that way, if that's okay. Um, So Killura Cave, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, (laughs) is that right? Um, That's where you found Mesolithic remains in there, is that right?
1: Yeah, so Killura Cave is in County Limerick on the banks of the Mulcair River, and that was actually my first archaeological excavation in a cave that was uh, directed by Peter Woodman. And at that particular site, the landowner, uh, Mr. Benny O'Neill, had found archaeological material in the cave. And, you know, he contacted the National Museum and then Peter started an excavation there in 1996. Uh, And I suppose what was really fascinating about Kilura and about a lot of the Irish caves that have archaeology is that Killua is an incredibly small site and a lot of the caves that produce archaeology tend to be very small sites, very narrow passages or very small chambers, very different to the kind of cave that we might imagine in our heads. Uh, and at Killua, there was one main entrance and a little passage leading into a chamber, incredibly small. I mean, you could really only fit two people in there at any one time. And when you're moving through the passage incredibly tight and you're crouched down and It's completely dark because you're blocking any natural light and such a small cave. And yet the evidence showed that people have been returning there for thousands of years from the early Mesolithic into the late Mesolithic, into the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age. And there was a consistency in how they were using the cave. So, in the Mesolithic, hunter gatherers were coming along and placing objects outside the entrance and placing disarticulated human bone. So, they must have been bringing little bags or pockets of bone with them, placing them at the entrance and sometimes leaving stone tools. Uh, in the Neolithic, uh, they continued leaving human bones, but at one point, They buried a dog at the entrance to the cave, and there was another dog, I think, further into the cave. And in the Bronze Age, which is something we see very much in in Bronze Age cave use, they're actually going into this tiny cave and leaving offerings at the back of the cave. And what always struck me as really incredible about Kilura is that it's so small, and in a single year, you know, it gets very quickly overgrown with bushes and briars and foliage. And yet for thousands of years, it's people were aware of this in, in early prehistory. Um, and I think it must have been marked out in some way and that maybe hunter-gatherers are, are traveling up and down the Mulcair River and that this little cave, as small as it is, was a significant point and that they're stopping off and going to the cave at, at particular times. And, you know, when we see a site like this where you might get five or six bones from a skeleton, you're immediately wondering, well, where is the rest of the skeleton? Where are the other Mm -hmm. bones being placed? They're just bringing a small few here and marking this visit with these bones of the ancestors or or of their dead family members. Um, And I think, you know, when we talk Mm -hmm. about folklore, we think about it very much in a modern sense, but you know, people in prehistory had their own stories as well. And for some of these very small caves where we see repeated reuse, it must have been word of mouth that passed from generation to generation about, you know, this tiny little cave on the banks of the river uh, and what was appropriate to do there, that it was a sacred place and and that we leave certain things at that site.
0: That's really interesting. (laughs) And, And I suppose, you know, That it's that consistency of tradition, if not belief, it's hard to say what people believed or you know exactly. But that consistency in in tradition over such a long time period of thousands of years is absolutely fascinating. As you say, that that place meant something clearly. So it's very interesting. And looking at um, moving slightly forward through time. Was the Neolithic evidence at Knocknarea? Of course, Sligo and that part of um, the country has some of the best Neolithic archaeology. I think in Europe, let alone Ireland, it's it's absolutely stunning. Um, what, of course, Knocknarea itself is capped by the huge Kern on top, which is believed to possibly be a passage tomb. It's not. Definite, but it, it's likely to be one. Was there a cave at Nochnoray that you investigated there as well?
1: Yeah, there's a whole series of caves around Nochnoray and uh, Dr. Thorsten Kallert uh, was doing his, his doctoral work on cave archaeology in, in the northwest of Ireland and Thorsten discovered some human bones on the floor of one of those caves. Stephen Burke had also found a human bone in another one of the caves, you know, very close by several years previous to that and we knew that that was Neolithic. So Thurston and I did a little rescue excavation in this cave And again, it was a little bit like Kalura in that it was a very, very narrow passage and you had to go in head first. So the opening was incredibly small. You you went in head first, lying on your tummy and basically, you know, trying to to crawl and, and slide down into this cave. And after a few meters, it got bigger and you could stand up. But it was so narrow, you couldn't have passed another person in the passage. You know, it was literally one person wide And, uh, yeah, Thorsten got a laugh because when he was telling me about the cave, I was saying, well, how many archaeologists could you have working in there? And uh, he's like, you know, two maximum, again, just a very, very small and and narrow space. And the way that that cave was used on Nockner Ray and probably many of the other caves up there is that it was used for a practice of excarnation, and this is something we find quite a bit in the neolithic uh, in how they're using caves in ireland and britain and what they're doing is they're bringing corpses of the dead into the cave leaving um the body there and then after decomposition maybe six months later or 12 months later they're coming back recovering the major skeletal elements. So they're taking away the skull and, and the large long bones, that kind of thing, and putting them somewhere else. Now, in the case of Nocna you're immediately thinking that they're possibly taking them to the passage tombs on the summit of the mountain. Um, but again, maybe dispersing those bones to, to lots of different places and what gets left behind in the cave center the very small bones that were missed so the finger bones or the the toe bones that were missed when people came back into the cave to recover the bigger bones and um, and again the people in the neolithic are specifically focusing on these caves that have very long narrow passages Uh, And it could be because they're seeing these as symbolic of, you know, passages to another world or a passage to the next stage of the afterlife, uh, because these caves are being used, you know, on a temporary basis, if you know what I mean. So this excarnation process is whatever, six months a year, two years, but then the person is being removed from the cave again. And what we found at Knocknare, I think we we only had about 13 bones because we just did a very small piece of work there. But those 13 bones were from a child and uh, at least one adult, possibly two adults. So, again, we're seeing many different people being brought into caves like this. Also, another thing, and this is work that Linda Fibiger did several years ago when she looked at all of the human bones that had been found in Irish caves, none of them have animal gnawing marks. So we know that animals weren't going in and scavenging fresh mm-hmm. corpses. So, you know, Linda believed that they're possibly blocking the entrances to caves. And I think she's absolutely right in that respect, um, because they're placing the bodies there and they don't want them disturbed. They're not covering the bodies. They're not putting them into graves. They're placing them on the floors of the caves. And if you didn't block the entrances, you'd have wolves or foxes or dogs coming in and, and scavenging the remains. So they're using them in a very, very particular way.
0: That's really interesting. I think as well, you know, it, it it's impossible, as you describe the 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 journey into that cave, not to see passage tombs as somehow being a mirror, aren't they? They are essentially artificial caves, aren't they? Um, it makes you think about the the belief system or the mindset, or as you say, whether it's a journey to the other world, or it's, um, I, I think that's really interesting indeed. I suppose going on from passage tombs in the Neolithic, there seems to be quite a bit of activity with regarding caves in the Bronze Age, am I right in saying that? And and Glen Curran Cave uh, gave us some really interesting insights into that.
1: Yeah, um, I and mean, what you see through time, particularly in prehistory, is that people seem to be using caves specifically for religious or spiritual purposes. And um, we virtually no evidence that people are living in caves prior to the early Christian or early medieval period. So, you know, we often have this general idea of Flintstones living in a cave, but if we look at the Irish archeological evidence from caves, we've virtually no convincing evidence that people ever lived in caves before the advent of Christianity. And caves seem to be very much reserved for issues around death, burial, funerary activities, ritual, votive deposition, they seem to be very much sacred places in the landscape. And of all the archeological periods, it's the Neolithic and Bronze Age where we see that in particular. And that's the same as the evidence from the rest of Europe. There's a real increase in cave usage for ritual purposes during the Neolithic and Bronze Age. And in the Bronze Age in particular, we see some of the things that we see in the Neolithic. We see people using caves for burial. So they're bringing a a dead person into the cave and leaving them on the cave floor, not removing the bones later. We also see some evidence of excoronation, like the example from Nocna But one of the really interesting things that starts happening in the Late Bronze Age is that we find for the first time, people start traveling very deep into caves. And this is something that wasn't happening in the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. When Neolithic people were using caves for excarnation or burial, a lot of that activity was happening relatively close to the entrance. Uh, But in the Bronze Age, there there seems to be this, this real deliberate action to go as deep into darkness and as deep into the cave as possible. And it's at the very end of the cave, if you like, that they're carrying out these activities. A lot of that seems to be around ritual deposition where they're going into these dark spaces and placing offerings on the floor of the cave. So you mentioned there Glencurran Cave in, in County Clare, and that's my favourite cave, if we're allowed to have a favourite archaeological site. And I dug there in 2004, 2005, and again in 2008 and nine, and and working on that final publication now. And that was really incredible. I mean, the kind of archaeology we have at Lankaran, there isn't really another parallel for it in Ireland and even in Britain. And what we're finding there, this was quite a large cave, but in the Late Bronze Age, people were um, going to the very back of the cave or the back of the cave as it would have been then and placing offerings on the cave floor in the Middle Bronze Age and in the Late Bronze Age. So the offerings that they're leaving seem to be very much tied up with ideas of fertility and regeneration. So they're bringing in newborn lambs, newborn calves, newborn piglets and placing them on the cave floor. We also have a newborn baby, just one bone from a newborn baby in the cave. And lots of other bones, uh, human bones, but again, only two or three bones from each individual. So we have bones from maybe 10 or 11 different people, but in each case, it's three or four bones. And what's really interesting is that they're particularly selecting the clavicle. So the clavicle is the shoulder bone. And what they're doing is obviously going to burial sites outside the cave and selecting these clavicles and bringing them into the back of the cave and placing them with all of these other offerings. We also have one burial at Glencurran. It's a two to four year old child and quite incredible um, the child was placed on a bed of rushes. So, you know, the rushes that we make St. Bridget's crosses from the rushes that you get in wet areas Mm -hmm. and they put the child very carefully on this bed of rushes. And beside the child, there were about 80 perforated cowrie shells and periwinkle shells. Now, we get perforated periwinkle shells in about four or five other caves in Ireland, but outside of caves, we tend not to find them. We have no real other parallels for perforated cowrie shells in Ireland, let alone a big cache of 40 of them. And what we think that those shells may have been items of jewellery placed with the child or they were more likely sewn onto clothing or maybe a blanket and that the child was wrapped in something and these little shells were were all attached to it. And what you're seeing there is a great uh, emotional investment in the burial of this child that this little boy or girl is receiving an incredibly unusual a grave good or, or maybe some kind of clothing placed around them and you know the idea of going to the the nearest coastline which is at least 12 kilometers away and you know very carefully collecting all of these shells and then spending a huge amount of time perforating them and then sewing them onto something or maybe threading them into a piece of jewelry so we're seeing just an incredible amount of care and attention and again you're wondering well who was this child to merit such a, a Kind of very careful and thoughtful form of burial Uh, what does that child mean to the community and why is there just one burial there we have all these other isolated bones but just one burial and we know certainly that the people using Glencurran cave were you know well off they were high status individuals because we have quite a number of amber beads uh, and of course the amber is coming from the Baltic. Uh, Lisa Maloney has done analysis of that amber and we know that it's in a cave in the Burin, but it ultimately originated from the Baltic and it would have been a really prestigious item in the late Bronze Age. So, you know, we're seeing wealth being deposited in the cave as well as uh, lots of other lovely little bone beads and stone beads and pottery sherds, but a very unusual site. Another thing that we're finding in the Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age is that it's not just that people are going very deep into caves, but I think they're spending quite a lot of time in the darkness. And again, it's not something that we can see clearly for earlier periods. And the reason that we can say that is because... At places like Glen Curran but there are other caves as well, we see that Bronze Age people are making changes to the cave itself. They're maybe building walls or they're digging up areas. In Glencurran, it's incredible. You can see where they've scraped off the soft calcite from the walls of the cave. So you can actually see the fingers or the finger rills where they've scraped it off and again that gives you such a tangible sense of connection you can say somebody's fingers scraped this off two and a half thousand years mm-hmm. ago uh, in Glencurrin and in other caves they're changing the micro environment they're changing the interior landscape of the the cave building things changing mm-hmm. things uh, digging holes um and really understanding the cave itself. In Glencairn, we find that they're digging up, there's this beautiful white clay, a natural clay deposited in the cave, and they're digging that up and using it to construct a monument in another part of the cave. And it's those kind of insights that you're only going to get if you spend a lot of time in the cave. And I think that what we may be seeing in the late Bronze Age for a short period, maybe for as little as four or 500 years, is that caves are being used for ritual retreat, that you have people, individuals going into a cave and spending maybe days, perhaps even weeks, in the darkness of a cave as part of of some kind of
0: ritual uh, retreat. That's something we see, um... A a little later as well, isn't it? We see that in kind of some early medieval uh, Christian context too. St. Patrick's Purgatory, um, you know, Kevin's Kevin's bed in Glendalough, which would be another small cave. Um, It's really interesting to think of that. And do you think that's part of... I know it's very, very hard to say, but do you think that's part of that kind of sensory experience that you are saying before, that once the vision is kind of gone when you're used to relying on that, that your imagination and your other senses kind of can take over a little bit. Do you think that's, it's hard to say why, but do you think that's possibly contributing towards these practices?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably the main reason. You know, it's this very, very unique sensory experience because for, for most sighted people, vision is the sense that we use all the time. And vision is a huge distraction. We're constantly looking and we're constantly taking in information. But when you go into a cave, that sense is completely redundant. And even if you have a torch or a wooden lamp or something very basic, it still is a um, not a a major sense and if you're in a cave you have to really use the other senses particularly the sense of touch so you're constantly feeling your way along the cave walls or being very very conscious of where your feet are moving you're not going to be having a conversation when you're moving through a cave you're very focused on moving through this dark uh, landscape And the other thing is that hearing becomes really, really pronounced because if you think about it in the outside world, there is no time when we have complete silence. We might say things like, oh, it's very quiet at night, but actually it isn't. There's, you know, maybe an animal making a noise or there's some wind or there's a bat flying about. So we never experience true silence in the outside world, but when you come into a cave, it can be almost very oppressive because there's absolutely no sound whatsoever. And there is a phenomenon uh, called auditory hallucination. And it's been recorded that um, cavers who might spend, let say, one or two weeks underground, that basically the hearing can't, the sense of hearing can't tolerate the silence. So they start having hallucinations, but auditory ones where they think they hear something. And <clears throat> what's interesting is that a lot of them have recorded hearing children's voices or, you know, the sound of of voices, but particularly children, which is quite interesting in itself. But even the sense of taste is very, very strong. So, you know, if you're in a cave and eating a cheese sandwich, it tastes like the most incredible cheese sandwich you've ever had in your life, because... There's such a heightened awareness of the other senses because the sense of sight is gone. And I know from working on cave excavations, you could see that really clearly where, you know, members of an excavation team who were working inside, they might be inside for four or five hours and they're chatting and there's several of them there. And then they come out and they've, oh, it's always. A very disorientating experience because maybe when they came into the cave the sun was shining and they're coming out four or five hours later and it's raining whereas they've been in an environment where nothing seems to change it's dark it's completely quiet uh, and it has a very disorientating effect so i think this whole idea of caves as places of ritual retreat it's very much tied to that the idea that you know, the this, this sense of vision is lost, but everything else becomes more heightened. And if we look at, you know, the medieval phila, the medieval poet, John Carey has done some very interesting work on, you know, the, the place of darkness in the life of the medieval poet or phila. And the idea um, that the poet or the phila would go into this place of darkness for a period of time. And the expression was, you know, in darkness, we see the truth or we see light or we gain wisdom, whereas, you know, when, when we're distracted by vision, we're not really getting wisdom. And, you know, this is something we see very much in Christianity as well. The idea of, you know, for example, Jesus going to a cave in the desert and spending a period of time there. But the idea that, you know, you don't have these worldly distractions and you have this silence for contemplation or for whatever In the case of the early Christian associations with caves in Ireland, I think in reality, most of those caves were probably not occupied by the saint because some of them are so incredibly small, you can hardly get into them, let alone live in them. Uh, But again, it's this idea of associating a saint and, and the idea of, you know, I suppose the austerity of it or the you know, severity of living such a simple and basic life in a cave and and it's acting more as a symbolic thing. Whereas I think in, in the late Bronze Age, there's a good possibility that we are having ritual practitioners spending periods of time in caves, you know, for whatever reason, to gain wisdom or maybe to commune with the dead or with the supernatural world or the spiritual world. I mean, we're never going to know why, but I think they are spending periods of time In these dark, silent
0: spaces. That's so interesting, Mary. And like you know, often actually on on the subject of the poets being put into these, uh, you know, going into caves and such. I always wondered about souterrains. Could some of those have been um, somewhere that you know, if you were a very powerful? minor noble or something like that uh it could be good bragging rights that you've got your poet cooking up something in the souterrain underneath <laughs> the house or something Do you know as well as being for storage and such perhaps um but I, I suppose one of the caves that um has always intrigued me and it is very much i know we've talked a lot about caves which are quite uh, small and narrow and, and and such but something which is a very spectacular cave and it's a cave with a very big story is Dunmore Cave in Kilkenny. And of course, there's the kind of traditional tale, uh, uh, and, it, and it comes from a reference in the Annals, doesn't it? That um, in either 928 or 930, depending on how you view it, um, Godfrey of Dublin marched down with the Vikings, slaughtered a thousand people at Dirk Ferner. And of course, in the 19th century, I think it was, uh, John O'Donovan and people doing the Ordnance Survey. Uh, found out that locals called Dunmore Cave Bergferner, and there'd obviously been lots of discoveries of human remains in there so two and two together it was seen as the site of a massacre and, and today it's a, it's a fabulous place to visit but I Marion you did some work in Dunmore Cave uh, and kind of looked at some of those remains again, Could we just kind of have a look about how archaeology and these kind of big stories about caves, because that's a really uh, kind of iconic tale isn't it, of darkness and death and violence all happening in a cave that's the kind of eerie side of caves but what did the archaeology tell us about it?
1: Yeah I mean the archaeology in some ways supported the medieval manuscript references but there were also kind of a lot of questions so I did some work there in 2004 and as you say It's a very, very large cave. It's the only show cave in Ireland that also has archaeology and an incredibly important site because there aren't many natural caves in the east of Ireland. So Dunmore is very important. And as you say, the manuscripts call it Dark Furna and talk about this Viking massacre. And when I was working there in 2004, I also recovered lots of human bone And Linda Lynch, an osteoarchaeologist, Linda Lynch, looked at the human bone from that uh, excavation and also the human bone that had been recovered from the site, you know, at different points in the late 19th century and in the 20th century. And I suppose we started questioning whether the accepted story, the accepted narrative was actually supported by the archaeology. So on the one hand, all of the artefacts that were recovered at different times in the history of exploration at Dunmore were exclusively Viking, including some of the ringed pins that I found in my work, a very typical glass beads, um, there is two Viking hordes there, a coin horde uh, and this beautiful silk textile. All of the artifacts were very much Viking in nature. And that raised one question. If this is the site where Vikings massacred the local Gaelic population, well, we shouldn't be finding all of this Viking material. You know, surely uh, if it was a massacre site, the Vikings wouldn't have left such valuable material in the cave behind them. The second issue was that when Linda looked at the human bone, absolutely none of the human bone had any signs of violent attack. So, you know, if these people had been killed by the sword or anything like that, you would expect to find, you know, traces of that on the bones. And yet none of these individuals showed that they were killed by violent means. And we got the first radiocarbon dates uh, back then, about 2004, 2005. And the the radiocarbon dates tied in roughly with the kind of 9.30 massacre that was talked about in the annals. But uh, they also kind of showed that there were kind of two periods that we might be looking at a kind of slightly later period of burial or, or activity as well. Um, So they're kind of almost like two distinct periods. So I suppose what I was trying to do at the time is to say, well, parts of the archaeology fits with it, but other parts of it don't fit. You know, um, we don't have signs on the skeletons of a violent attack. It's a very, very large cave. And what some of the antiquarians were trying to do is figure out how the Vikings had killed the local population and one of the theories was that they were smothered in the cave that wouldn't really be possible because it's an enormous cave and you know you just wouldn't be able to block the entrance and you know suffocate um a population like that and also the bones were found all over the cave, in all different chambers, and in very, very obscure areas. So one possibility that I've put forward is that this is actually a Viking burial site, and that the people that we're looking at are a Viking or a Hiberno Viking population that were buried in the cave, and that all of the Viking grave goods, the beads and the ringed pins, are are objects that these um, individuals were wearing, or they were grave goods of some kind. Uh, Now, DNA analysis or isotope analysis will answer that question one way or another. You know, whenever that happens, we'll know whether these are a Gaelic population or a Viking population or a mix. But if I was a betting person, I would think there's a good chance that these are actually Vikings and that this is a Viking burial ground.
0: Yeah, it's a a fascinating place as well, isn't it? And just looking at actually uh, in terms of how the Vikings... Use caves, uh, and which I I kind of think is quite interesting, because there is a tradition as well of not only burial in caves, but almost um in, in other parts of Europe, they kind of use caves to kind of stash loot in a way uh, to use them as a base of raiding and things like that uh, during temporary raiding seasons and such, which might answer. To why there was the second because one of the hearts was a little bit later, wasn't it? It was about 960 or 970. So I I think Dunmore has such a fascinating tale. And you know that that's it. Sometimes that when a a story has such good historical kind of connections, that this is where archaeology and history work really well together. When you can just step back and go, okay, let's have a look at the evidence again. I think it's a fascinating example of that. Um one of the when I was reading the archaeology of caves in Ireland, one of the stories I found really poignant, actually, it it kind of touched me in a way, was the the story of of um a, a young man or a young boy at Muen cave that's a little bit later in history now. Can we talk about him a little if that's okay, Marion? Yeah, so
1: that was a high medieval um boy. And we were doing a rescue excavation in Monin Cave. Again, this is another cave in the Burren outside Ballyvahan village. And again, it was discovered by cavers. So we went in to do a little rescue excavation. And there was lots of Bronze Age pottery and prehistoric material. And then we found this. A skeleton. Um, Now, you could see it was a child, but at the time we thought it was a younger child. It turned out to be a boy who was 12 to 14 years old. And we weren't sure was the skeleton associated with the pottery because there was no stratigraphy and the pottery was literally beside it. And I suppose it was unusual because generally in caves, you don't find complete burials. Caves tend to be places where you have foxes or badgers going in and there's always a lot of disturbance. So you don't tend to find, you know, a complete body like that. Uh, And we did a huge amount of analysis on this individual and it turned out to be a boy. um, And that was based on DNA analysis but he'd had an incredibly difficult life. We know that he suffered from anemia in his earlier life. And then um, in later life, we could see from Harris lines on his long bones. So this is where you can take uh, the long bones from a skeleton and do an X-ray similar to the X-rays we do in, in a hospital nowadays. And if there are times of extreme stress in the life of a person, basically the body shuts down and stops growing. And we could see these lines every single year, year after year for this boy, where basically from a very young age, his body was under severe uh, malnutrition. So probably there were the same months every year, maybe the winter months, um, where he just didn't have enough food and he was so malnourished that his body basically shut down to the point where he had stunted growth or seemed to have stunted growth. So when we found the remains, I thought it was a much younger child, but that was because of this stunted growth. So he was kind of 12 to 14 years old. Um, And I think what happened was that he hid in the cave. I mean, there's no evidence he was living in the cave, but I think he hid in the cave and he kind of curled up and died probably of hypothermia, malnutrition, you know, a series of different things. He was obviously poor boy who just suffered incredibly during his life. And, you know, we could find all of those signs literally marked on his his body. And, you know, the radiocarbon dates tell us that he died in maybe the 16th or 17th century. So, again, you're looking at a time of religious persecution with the penal laws. You're looking at a time of great political instability, um, of great poverty, And I suppose because I'm, you know, basically a prehistorian, you know, for me, it was really amazing to see how much you you can tell about the life and, and to know that, you know, this boy would have spoken Irish. He probably almost certainly spoke no English or wouldn't have understood English. He must have lived nearby. And that, you know, at some point he hid in this cave and died there, but because the cave is in such an isolated part of the mountain, tiny little space, you know, that his family or community just couldn't find him, he was just lost. Uh, and couldn't recover his body. And again, we know because it was a recent period that Christian burial was normal. So you know this would have been a great source of anguish that you know they couldn't recover the body of their son or brother or whoever he was important to, and gave him a proper Christian burial. And I suppose that's the thing with archaeology that the more you investigate, we we literally through every type of scientific analysis at this. But we really wanted to get the maximum amount of information and everything we did just gave us more and more. But yeah, it was just incredibly sad and you know, such a, a sad insight to, to this poor boy's life. Um, yeah, that's the thing with caves. They have all of these stories that are all very, very different. They're not being used in one particular way. There might be trends through time but they're used in such different ways. And I think that's part of the reason that I just love cave archeology. span I mean, for me, it's the most interesting type of archeology span because you never know what you're going to find. You never know what the story is and you're really starting off in the dark and you're getting bits of information. And often it's not until you get a radiocarbon date that you can figure out, okay, we're not in the bronze age. We're in the high medieval period and start piecing things together. And that's very different. I mean, if you're going excavating a medieval castle, you're anticipating finding medieval material. If you're excavating a ring fort, you're expecting to find early medieval material. If you dig a passage to, you're expecting the Neolithic. In a cave, you can't have any expectations. You can't go into a cave saying, oh, I hope I find the Iron Age. Y- you just find what's there and, and you interpret that. And that's something that I learned from Peter Woodman, you know, he would, he was, you know, my main mentor in college, but he had a great approach. And his approach was very much, you work with what you're given, you know, whatever data you're given, whatever data comes from the cave, you work with that and, and you don't try and, and push it into period. You just see what it tells you.
0: That's fascinating. It it, it really is. It's so interesting. I, I suppose looking at those different uses of caves, you know, from places of ritual and belief, places where people go for inspiration or otherworldly thoughts, perhaps, to to um, people desperately seeking shelter, like that tragic story at Manin, to something a little perhaps more political and pragmatic in some ways. In in the the last century, during the War of Independence, caves become important again, don't they?
1: Yeah. I mean, we know that in in the war of independence and in the civil war, a lot of very isolated caves in rural parts of the landscape, isolated parts of the landscape were used as hideouts, either hideouts for people or hideouts for arms and ammunition. And these caves would have been, you know, very remote kind of secret locations, very much tying in with guerrilla warfare um, and the idea of using the natural landscape in, in combat. And yeah, I mean, it is fascinating that uh, so many caves around, you know, particularly maybe Cork along the West Coast and limestone parts of the country were used as as hideouts. And when caves are used as hideouts, they they tend not to have any archeological evidence left behind. Now, in the case of arms and ammunition, there are caves like Ovens Cave in Cork or um, Palna Nagollum in Clare, Where arms have been left behind, and you know, you find rifles um, and that kind of thing. So you've got the physical evidence, but in most cases, it's written accounts where people will say, we hid out in this particular cave for a couple of nights or a couple of weeks. Um, And that then makes us realize that, you know, in the past, people obviously also used caves as hideouts, but they didn't leave anything behind. So those kind of stories are completely lost to us. Uh, But yeah, in, in the War of Independence, In particular, caves would have been used as hideouts. And there's some great stories. There are a number of caves in in Sligo that were used at that time. And, you know, I've met several people who tell me that their grandmother or their great grandmother took tea and cake to the men in the caves and you know, would pretend that they were off doing some domestic or farming activity, but they're actually going up to, to the cave with bottles of tea. Uh, and, you know, again, just incredible to think that caves were still so important. I think nowadays we have no real sense of caves. You know, most of us have been to show cave or we go on holidays and we'll go to a cave there. But most of us don't really engage with caves at all. They've kind of been lost from our sense of landscape or our sense of surrounding. Um, And they've kind of become hidden again, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think that in the past, when people were far more in tune with the landscape, you know, they knew where the local caves are. And you'll find that a lot of caves had a name, you know, they they had a name. If we look at, like, Gael'thacht parts of Ireland or Rathlin Island, for example, most of the caves there had a particular name. And I find that, you know, quite amazing. It's like you mentioned mountains earlier. We have a name for our mountains. We have names for our lakes and rivers. We also had names for our caves, but a lot of those names have been lost. I mean, you do find that some of those names are pre- preserved in modern townlands. Uh, so anything with paul, like, tends to relate to a cave. So paul meaning a hole, but specifically a cave. But also when we have oo like Glenahoo, um oo is an anglicization of "uiv". So if you have a townland or a town that ends in in OO, it's often relating to a cave, the place of the cave.
0: Very interesting. And are there many places where people can experience caves? I know we mentioned Dunmore Cave uh, before, which is, um, I, I really like it. I think it's uh, there's not many upstanding Viking sites, unfortunately, uh, to visit. So going down into the depths of the cave there, I think is a great experience. And it's a beautiful cave too. Are there many other places that people can get a sense of? Um, the archaeology
1: caves? I think we have, you know, four or five caves in Ireland, like Mitchellstown Caves, of course, and they were used during the War of Independence as hideouts. In Fermanagh, we have the Marble Arch Caves, and part of, of that system, it's a very extensive system, but part of it was used in the early Bronze Age um, for depositing humans or human bodies. And in Clare, we have Islewy Cave, and Pallanon, and, and in Kerry, we have Crag Cave. Um, so, yeah, there are, you know, quite a number of showcases in Ireland. And these tend to be the really large caves with really beautiful stalagmites and stalactites and interesting geological features, what we call speleothems. Um, most of them don't actually have archaeology, however.
0: Yeah, I, I always think, um, you know, I was, I was in Dunmore Cave there um, and I, I always think it's such it's such a strange place in a way and, and I don't know, do you get the sense too in caves that you, you think about it and you think about the, vi- the story of the Vikings there and that feels like an impossibly long time ago, you know, it's over a thousand years since those events and um, and then you realise just over there is a, a a formation that probably formed over a million years ago, and it's all just an eye blink, isn't it? Caves kind of the the the, the such kind of um, time capsules, I suppose, in a sense, aren't they? It's strange. Yeah,
1: yeah they are, and actually. <laughs> I, I'm using that that phrase, time capsule, in a publication I'm working on at the moment, because that's exactly what they are. You know, they hold and they contain objects and things and experiences from the past. And I suppose another thing is that caves are great for preservation. So things that will preserve in a cave environment won't necessarily preserve in an outdoor site. And even things like DNA, I mean, the further back in time you go, if you want to recover bones where there's good preservation of DNA, caves are the ideal location for that. But even things like little glass beads, we have one of the largest Viking necklaces in Ireland or Britain, uh, coming from Glencurran Cave in the Burren. And if that necklace had been in a ring fort or an outdoor site, it probably wouldn't have survived the last 1,000 years. So you get really good preservation of materials in caves. The downside, though, is that that material tends to be very, very mixed up because of animal activities or people repeatedly using the cave. So, you know, I've had cases where we're finding Bronze Age pottery together with plastic headphones from philips walkman you know in exactly the same stratum so you know you have to accept that there's going to be disturbance of the material but what you find tends to be quite well preserved
0: yeah i i, th- I think it's such a fascinating subject and you know i, I just uh, want to recommend everybody again take a look at the archaeology of caves now it's a brilliant publication i really like the archaeology of darkness as well which gives some of those um the theories about behavior in caves and things like that come across really well. There's some brilliant papers in there too. And we'll put all of that and and links to some of these sites as well in the show notes. But Marion, I want to thank you so much for this chat. It's been absolutely brilliant. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to take a look at some of these caves, I think, and I'm really looking forward to the, to the forthcoming, seeing the rest of the work that's coming out now, because it seems like some brilliant discoveries being made.
1: Yeah, there's lots of great things happening in cave archaeology at the moment. So, thank you for having me.
0: So that's it for this edition of Amplify Archaeology. I just want to thank Marion again. That was absolutely fascinating. It's a subject, I think, that I've always been kind of really intrigued by. Just even the process, the difficulty and the nerve and the guts to be able to go into some of these really narrow very dark spaces I'm not sure I could put up with the cave spiders myself but I I think it's absolutely fascinating and Marion's book once again the archaeology of caves in Ireland brilliant it really really is and she's done quite a few other publications and papers I'll put links in the show notes on her website at abataheritage.ie so uh, one of the other things that's coming up now at the end of this month at the end of May Unless things go badly wrong, but I think it's going all right, famous last words, our new service will be launched on our website. And this is something which is hopefully going to help people to discover more about great places to see in an Ireland and to discover a little bit more about Irish archaeology and Irish heritage. If that's something that you're interested in, I'd recommend you go to our website, aboutheritage.ie. You'll see a link there to sign up for our newsletter because people on our mailing list will be the very first ones to hear about it. And they're also going to get a great offer as well. That will all be done by the end of this month. Um, So make sure you don't miss out and sign up to our mailing list there. Uh, We won't spam you. And every Monday you'll get one of our favorite hidden heritage sites as well. Uh, So we've got sites like Bridgetown Priory, um, we've got uh, Moon High Cross, Gullstown Dolmen all of these magic places that um, hopefully will inspire people to go and visit now that we can travel again. So for now I want to thank you all for listening we've got some really nice episodes lined up for the near future as well so I'm really looking forward to bringing more chats with Ireland's amazing archaeologists here. Thanks very much and take care. Goodbye.